Well, good morning. Uh, with respect for a prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand in just a moment. But Jesus' disciples, you know, they never said, hey, show us how to teach parables like you do. Or never said, hey, show us, you know, a lot of the, the stuff you actually do, these miraculous healings and stuff. But what they did come to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I think we know the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us. So let's, with respect for his word, stand and pray that together as we think about prayer today. And let's use the word, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, okay? Let's pray together, starting with the words, Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, the rest from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, glory forever. Amen. Thanks. This week, uh, Charles Stanley passed away. And I was reading his obituary in Christianity Today, and it said these words. He, uh, Charles Stanley, was uh, frequently spoke of the importance of prayer and his own practice of getting down on his knees daily to talk to God. For me, that's the key, he told Christianity Today. It's the key to everything because what you are doing is you're acknowledging God at the moment. You need this help, his insight, his understanding, or his courage, or his faith, whatever it might be. And I thought, well, what a great testimony by a, a great Christian leader of the importance of uh, praying and giving God the day and, and whatever it is that you're experiencing and feeling on that day. Uh, our young people just finished studying uh, Ephesus and had the privilege to be there years ago. Here's just some pictures to kind of re review again. Today it's called the Kusadasi, Turkey, and it's amazing because it used to be a kind of a, a town, uh, like a, sh a shipping town, but, you know, the water has, has receded over the years, and it's, uh, it's not anywhere near what it was years ago. Uh, I guess I used to be that the water level was higher and, and has dropped over time. Uh, and in that city, though, just outside the city, up on the hill, here's a little box here. There's a, about a half mile out of the city. There's a, a place uh, that is just called Mary's house. Now, you remember in John 19, at the cross of Christ uh, stood his mother. And when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, which was John, who's writing these words, uh, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Um, we know that uh, the, the disciple, you know, John was pastor of the church in Ephesus for 40 years. I always loved the story of him as an old man, even. Uh, they would bring him in on a pallet uh, into the church service, and he could hardly talk even anymore, but he would always say the same thing. My little children, love one another. That was his recurring theme. And I was at the house here called Mary's house, which has been rebuilt. If you look where I'm standing here, about 
uh, just below my waist in this picture, you'll see a line. When they excavated the site, that was uh, the original ruins of the house were only about that high, and they rebuilt it up from that. Um, but the place was quite crowded the day I was there. Just, you know, I guess Mary is still pretty popular in the world. And uh, inside, just a small, simple little house. Uh, they put in these beautiful windows. I'm not sure they were there when she lived there, but here was the thing that fascinated me. Uh, go forward, another one. And now one more. Um, outside, there's this big hole in the ground. I thought, well, she had a swimming pool, or, or what is this? And they said, no, that was a baptistry. People used to come here for over a 1,000 years to get baptized. And I said, well, they didn't, you know, I'm sorry, no offense to my Catholic friends, but they didn't just sprinkle them a little bit. Or no, they, they would baptize them there because people wanted to be baptized at what they viewed was a holy site. And when you come down around the hill as you, as you exit the place, there's a little uh, a tap coming with some water and all of these prayer claws that people have put up for people that they're praying for. And uh, the, the whole wall, you can just see, is just packed with prayer requests for people who were in need of some way, shape, or form. Dr. Wiersbe writes, in the prison letters of Paul, which Ephesians was one of those, it was written by Paul when he was in jail in Corinth, uh, we discover the blessings he wanted his converts to enjoy. In none of these prayers does Paul request material things. Think about what we pray for. Uh, his, his emphasis is on spiritual perception and real Christian character. He does not ask God to give them what they do not have, but rather prays that God will reveal to them what they already have. Key point. Not something that you, don't ha that you, you need, but it's something that you have, you just maybe don't recognize that you have it yet. Uh, Ephesians 1, if you open your Bible, Ephesians 1, uh, starting at verse 15, it'll also be up on the screen. It says that uh, he begins always in, with a formula, every letter he writes, with a thanksgiving at the start. And here the thanksgiving is, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. Uh, what was it that he admired about these people? They had faith and they had love. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. What are you going to do when you're locked up in prison? What are you going to do? Well, he could, couldn't stop him from praying, and he was praying for these churches, and he had had a, a time in Ephesus. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what, what was your prayer request for them? To give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Um, when I read Paul's prayer, and then I think of the prayers I've heard in, in church as a boy growing up and stuff through the years, his prayers are just so different from, from what I used to hear, which was pretty much praying for sick people, for missionaries, uh, you know, for financial needs or other needs of people in the church. But uh, what he prays for is is that uh, people would grow in spiritual insight and wisdom. And, I mean, you think about it, 
is there anything more important than that? to be able to discern what's happening and, and what it means in life. And yet in our day, John Ortberg writes, uh, conventional wisdom says that when it comes to values, when it comes to what matters, when it comes to meaning and goodness, you've got to think for yourself. That's the way that the world views everything right now. In fact, a few years ago, David uh, uh, Alan Bloom wrote a book. Dr. Bloom is a professor at the University of Chicago. And he wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And it was his frustration as a professor that the, the young people coming into his class just had so little background. He said it used to be uh, that there was some commonality among young people that when they come, came in, they knew a little bit. I mean, if you talked about like Abraham or Moses or you talked about anything to do uh, with history of our country, they had some background. He said, and now it's like they just don't seem to have any knowledge of that or respect for that. He writes, it's virtually guaranteed that any freshman who enters a college or university in the United States comes already persuaded of a relativistic view of truth. He argues that far from helping the freshmen to grow out of this naive and untenable position, higher education tends to reinforce the error. Now, what's so fascinating about his view, because he's not a believer, is his argument that relativism is the closing of the mind to truth. And that in, instead of them being, as they would view it, so inclusive and open, it's actually them closing their mind to truth in the way that, that it's being viewed in the uh, system. I was reading a, a speech by the uh, president of Yale University to the incoming freshmen just last fall. And in that speech, he said, well, you know, we can tell you about facts about history or facts about science or some things you can do and learn through research. He said, but ultimately it doesn't matter what we're going to teach you. You got to decide everything. You got to decide what you believe. You got to decide what you think about everything because ultimately you're the ultimate resource for truth, not what we teach you here at the university. And I'm thinking, wow, well then I'll just go home and, you know, spend time by myself instead of paying all this money. Um, it was uh, Kevin Miller who said, we need to let the wisdom of God's word surpass conventional wisdom. I think that's just a great statement. And I think Paul is praying for spiritual wisdom insight because it's just so important. Verse 18, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. Uh, under We hear a lot in the Bible about the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that God gives us insight and that that illumination is going to come here so that you can understand the confident hope he's given to those he's called. Now the text again says, here's what he wants us to understand. And you'll notice in these verses he keeps saying, understand. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand that. And he says, I want you to understand the confident hope. Now, you have to remember that a hope in the Bible is not like you hope, you hope so. It's a, not like a child at Christmas who says, oh, I hope I get a bike, you know, or I, or I hope I get a new video game or something like that. It's not hope like that. Hope for a, a believer is what he says is a confident hope. It's the blessed hope that we have that because of the promises that Christ made to us, because of the proof of the, the resurrection, we have something that we can look forward to uh, because uh, ultimately, as he says, wisdom plus insight is what equals growth for a believer. And he says, you, can, you have this hope because God has given to you already. You already have it. He's given it to you, to those of you he has called. 
it says uh, hope is given to those who are called. We're going to talk about the, the calling in a little bit more here, but let's talk about hope for first. Uh, neuroscientist uh, Talia Sherot argues that hope is so essential to our survival that it is hardwired into our brains, arguing it can be the difference between living a healthier life versus one trapped by despair. In other words, hope is indispensable to life. Dr. Shane Lopez, the psychologist who was regarded in the world's leading researcher on, as the world's leading researcher on hope, claimed that hope isn't just an emotion, but it's an essential life, uh, life tool. You have to have hope to survive and to do well. Most of the study in psychology these days is uh, not so much on dysfunction as it is on function. Most of the stuff is how can you not, not can we look at every irregularity in, in people's mental function, but how can we help people to see what makes them happy and fulfilled and, and a productive member of society? And what they're finding out is that one of the indispensable elements of that is you have to have hope. And as, again, Paul says, you have that. Again, back to the text, you, he's given it to those of you that he's called. Now, who is he called? Well, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because this was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. There's a lot of, of struggle to understand uh, predestination versus pre will. Those God has called versus the, the free will that we have to make decisions. Uh, I like the way, again, Erwin Lutzer talks about it. He says, when you get to heaven, over the top of the gateway, walking into heaven, it says, whosoever will may come. And then when you walk through that gateway and you look at the back of that arch, it says, chosen before the foundations of the world. Based on, on this text that, as Paul says to Timothy, you know, you were chosen before time began. You know, before there was creation, before there was anything, God already had a plan that included you. He wanted you. There's a story in Africa of a missionary, and some of the people in the tribe he was working with were asking him to explain this uh, predestination free will thing, and uh, he tried to do the best he could, and then the next morning, early in the morning, before he, you know, even had breakfast or anything, one of the people he was working with came and knocked on his door, and he says, I couldn't sleep all night. I was so upset by, by what you talked about yesterday. And he said, well, what was upsetting to you? He says, I just couldn't believe that God chose me. He could have had anybody, and he chose me. He said, I'm just so overwhelmed by it, I couldn't even sleep last night. And I think a lot of us have lost the wonder of that. That as 1 Corinthians 1 says, he didn't choose the best and the brightest. He, he chose uh, sometimes the plain things of the world to confound the wise. But, but as, as believers, we're, we're grateful to God because he has called us to himself. The text goes on. Uh, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. How much has he chosen us? Well, here's an amazing truth. God looks at you as part of his legacy. God looks at you as part of his incredible wealth. Um, well, my mother died about four years ago. My father died about 13 years ago. 
And uh, given the inheritance from, I had from the vast uh, Ankerberg legacy, uh, uh, let's just say I had to pay for the funeral. There was just nothing there. And, but a lot of people, you know, have been blessed in life with uh, an inheritance. And it's been a, a plus thing. It's been a positive thing. And some people, it's been destructive, actually. But, but you know, a lot of people look forward to something. Uh, and it says, here, here's, here's the inheritance. It doesn't say that, notice again the text, it doesn't say uh, he, he is your inheritance. It says you, his holy people, are his rich and glorious inheritance. Not only has he called you, but he values you. He, he doesn't take you because, you know, he, he just it was totally merciful one day and said, oh, look at this, look at this schmuck down there. I'm, I'm going to save him anyway just because he needs help, you know. No. He reaches out to us and makes us part of his inheritance. In Psalm 33, what joy for the nation whose God is the Lord, whose people he has chosen as his inheritance. He has chosen us to do his work. Um, verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. You see what I mean in, in every one of these phrases? What I'm, I'd like to propose to you is this. Let's improve our prayer life. Let's improve our individual prayer life. You got right in the Bible here, Ephesians 1, 15 to the end of the chapter. You've got about seven verses there to look at. And just think about how can I incorporate this? Um, I have a few thousand people who follow me on Facebook. And one of the things I try to do for the people is when their birthday comes up, I, I try to pray through everybody whose birthday that day was. And, and as, as much as I can, I try to write them a note just saying, I was praying for you today. Thank God for you. And I typically will take some of the verses out of a prayer like this. And I pray that you will grow in wisdom and insight and God's blessing and that you'll fully have confidence in him and his salvation that he's called you to in Christ. And people constantly are responding, oh, I just love those greetings you give on my birthday because nobody says stuff like that to me. And we can have a ministry of communicating with each other in, in ways. And instead of just praying, well, I pray you'll feel better, or I pray that you'll have a good week, or I'll pray to really pray about more significant issues in their spiritual life. What do you pray when you pray over your children? What do you pray when you pray over your friends? And why not start to bring some of these elements in uh, to your prayer life to develop a deeper, more meaningful life of talking with God. Um, when he says the incredible greatness of God's power, you know, I love that word dunamis, word that our word dynamite comes from, or dynamo. And it says that there's God's power for us who believe, but then he goes on. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. You'll notice he doesn't just say power here. He says mighty power. And it's a, it's a word that only Paul uses in the New Testament. And it's uh, uperbalon. It, uh, it with a, a genitive in the Greek tense always means like super. So what he's saying here is uh, this is the same superpower. 
everybody understands that now. You know, we've got, we've got the, the Justice League. We've got the X-Men. We've got the Avengers. We've got all kinds of superpowers out there, you know, that we, we uh, see stories about or hear about. Well, it says there is a superpower that you have, and here it is. It's the one that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that same power that was able to do that is the power that you have living with you in Jesus Christ. The more you know him, Tim Keller writes, the more you grow into the power of the resurrection. Paul's, uh, Paul's prayer, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. He says, I want to experience more and more of this power that was able to raise Christ. And the text goes on now in Ephesians, and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Typically, when, uh, when the, Paul writes about the resurrection, he doesn't just mean the resurrection. He typically means the resurrection, which in his mind is not just that he came out of the grave on Easter morning, but that he uh, ascended into heaven and that he sits at the right hand of God. That's all part of this package of the power that he has. It was uh, uh, Gerald Heiston who said, hold fast to Jesus because his power is worthy of our trust. And again, back to Ephesians, now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. I like the story of Sam Bronfman, who is the CEO of Seagram's, and he comes into a crowded conference room one day, and he's all anxious uh, to get the meeting going, so he just sits down. And as he sits down, you know, one of the, uh, one of the younger interns, his young assistants, immediately says to him, uh, Mr. Bromfman, you're supposed to sit at the head of the table. And Bromfman says, young man, wherever I sit is the head of the table. <laughs> you know, and when we're talking about, about Christ, it's that way. Uh, he is the king of kings, whether you believe it or not. He is the Lord of lords. He is the, the, the cosmic ruler over all things. The Elan Vital, the teleological urge, the fulfillment of all the promises God made uh, fulfilled in him. The hymn, again, Colossians, through whom everything exists, everything that was created was created by him and for him. And in his love, he has called us to himself and we are, in his view, his riches, his in blessing. Um, I like what Clint Arnold said. Uh, let's see, go forward one more. The Ephesian readers, coming as they did from a background of strong magical belief, might have found the power of Diana more imposing and fearful than that of God. Again, the temple of Diana in Ephesus was one of the eight wonders of the world. Uh, some of you have maybe been some point in your life you've been in Istanbul and you've been to Hagia Sophia and they have these huge uh, rose quartz pillars. Uh, it would probably take about three or four people holding hands to reach around them. And they're, they're like 50, 60 feet tall. And those were the pillars that they took out of the temple of Diana in Ephesus and brought to Istanbul. And it was this most beautiful temple for a pagan deity in, in the ancient world. And out in front were all these tents where they would have these quote-unquote priestesses who would uh, celebrate uh, fertility with you if you would make a donation to the 
to the the temple. And it sounds so much better than prostitution, but uh, they would celebrate fertility with you and honor the goddess Diana. But here again, th- th- this Ephesian uh, goddess Diana was regarded as queen over both the heavenly powers, including the potent zodiac powers and the gods of the underworld. So when, when uh, go back like two slides to verse 21, when he, he says that he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. And then in the next phrase, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's greater than Diana. Uh, The stuff that you believe about this goddess you worship, I've got somebody that she would worship if she could, because he's the one who really has all the authority in the universe. Now, knowing Christ Uh, And he has made him, Christ, head over all things for the benefit of the church. Uh, Probably, uh, how do you look at at Cedar Home uh, Baptist Church? Do you think you're significant? Are you significant in the eyes of your neighbors or people in the community where you live? Or they think you're significant in the city or you think you're... Significant. Well, I can tell you that in the view of God, you're the most significant thing that's going on right now because you are the church of the living God. And as he goes on here, he says this. It's all for the benefit of the church, and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. The church, the believers in Christ, not just here but around the world, are made full and complete. Mature, teleos, means uh, to come to full maturity, full realization of everything you are, everything you have, and made complete in your hope, complete in your wisdom, complete in your insight, complete in your understanding by Christ. So you, you pray to Christ to give you wisdom and understanding because that's where it comes from. And it says... Uh, he fills all things everywhere with himself. Robert Weber says, we are all part of the problem, but there's only one man who is the solution. His name is Jesus. Chuck Colson writes, any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on a reawakening and renewal of that which is the essence of the faith. That is the people of God and the, the new society, the body of Christ, the church. Uh, it was an old parable about the angels in heaven are talking to Jesus when he comes back after the ascension. And they're saying, uh, so you're back in heaven now. What happens now? He says, well, I spent, you know, three years with Peter, James, and John, and the disciples, and and a bunch of, uh, you know, women who were traveling along with us, 120 people who followed. And, and, you know, now it's up to them to tell the message. And the angels looked down at what they saw there and said, uh, if that doesn't work, you got another plan? And he says, no, that's the only plan, is that they will tell people, they will share, they will strive to be all that they are because of who I've made them to be. And when people see what they are, who they are in Christ, then they will want to follow him as well. We're the only plan. I like uh, Dallas Willard. I had the 
a number of years ago, uh, a couple of people in my church, uh, Bruce and Kathy Naramore, uh, their daughter Debbie was getting married, and they had the reception at their house, and so we were sitting all over the place, and they put my wife and I at a little table with, uh, with Dr. Dallas Willard and his wife Jane, which was a great thrill for me to be able to just hang out with him and talk to him a little bit. Great professor uh, and great uh, person who's really devoted his life and ministry to helping people know who they are and what they have in Christ. And at the, uh, just shortly before he passed on, a Christianity Today interviewed him, and they said, Dr. Willard, are you worried about the future of the church? And he says, I know Christ is the head of his church, and he knows what he's doing. I'm not worried about it. It's not ours. It's his. He knows what he's doing. He knows who the next pastor is going to be. He knows uh, what the church is going to continue to develop as. He knows who God's going to use, and he, he's going to know who's being intransient and won't be pliable. He knows it all, and it's his. And in his love and grace, like that young boy in Africa, maybe you could go home today and just think, I just can't believe you chose me. I can't believe you've given me insight and wisdom. You've given me hope. You've given me power. Thank you so much, God, for what you've given to me. And that's our prayer, Father, that you would come to us and settle in these areas of our heart and soul, these areas where you have done so much for us. And may we be receptive to your help and support. For we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.